Welcome to this week's edition of Ocean Allison, where I bring you the best in ocean science, education, and conservation through conversations with people who are creating positive change for the ocean. Ocean Advocate is Caitlin Lauder. Caitlin is a PhD student studying the effects of ocean acidification on marine organisms and recently shared her knowledge at the 2015 Paris Climate Change Conference. Hi Caitlin, welcome to the show. Hi there. Thanks so much for joining me today. I'm really excited to talk to you and learn about your experience at the Paris Climate Change Conference. I'm very excited to share that. (laughs) Great. So uh, to give our listeners a little bit of background, I recently met Caitlin, I think it was just a few weeks ago, Mm -hmm. at a lecture at Scripps Institution of Oceanography, where she presented about her experience at COP21. And COP21, for our listeners that have never heard of that, is the Conference of Parties, and it's the 21st Conference of Parties. And this means the countries that are part of the UN's Convention on Climate, so These countries get together every year and they discuss how we can combat global climate change. This is the 21st one, hence COP21. So when you hear us referring to that throughout the podcast, you'll know what we're talking about. Um, And Caitlin got to go as a grad student at Scripps Institution of Oceanography. She got to go to COP21, which was held in Paris, and I heard her talk all about her experience. And I went up right after and said, I'd love to have you on the podcast. She was a great speaker, and I was really interested in what she had to say, and I think that our listeners will be as well. So, Caitlin, thanks so much for a great talk at that event. I was really impressed at your presentation style. Oh, thank you so much. It was a great chance to be able to talk at Birch for the first time and be able to share that with everyone that was there. So I want to talk about COP21 and what came out of that and your experience there, Uh but First, I want to talk about your research, your ocean acidification research that you're doing as a PhD student. Uh-huh. But it might be helpful to our listeners to first <laughs> know what ocean acidification is. Some of you might have heard that term. Maybe some of you have never heard that term. Caitlin, can you give us a brief definition of what ocean acidification actually is? Yeah, definitely. So it's a problem in our oceans that's also caused by carbon dioxide, like global changes or global climate change. Um, and it happens when carbon dioxide expelled from cars and factories and other sources dissolves into our ocean. Uh, so the gas actually dissolves and then it changes ocean chemistry. So there are multiple changes, including changes in pH or the acidity level of the ocean. And we expect that to get worse in the future. So a lot of scientists right now are trying to understand what that means for the animal life and the plant life in our oceans. So what type of animals does ocean acidification most affect or or will it most affect in the future? Oh, that's a good question. So it seems like from the research that's coming out, and this has been a relatively new topic too, so we're still learning a lot more about it, but a lot of the research has been focusing on animals like shellfish. So Uh, mussels and oysters and how they're affected. The issue I think was first brought up off the coast of Washington where a lot of hatcheries for these mussels and oysters started seeing really negative effects on their animals and we've since learned that that was because of the low pH water that was starting to come up more and more. It naturally does with upwelling but more so in recent years and these are the animals that tend to be most negatively affected. Corals tend to really rely on 
having an ocean chemistry that they enjoy. So they're not doing so hot either, especially with the temperature increases that we've been seeing lately too. Um, but I, in particular, study crustaceans. So we don't have a lot of research on them, but we're starting to learn that they might not be as affected as some other animals. Interesting. And so you're looking at these shelled animals uh-huh. like clams and mussels, and, and you in particular looking at crustaceans like lobsters or crabs. Mm-hmm. And that's because they have shells, correct? Yeah, so their shells are a little bit different than that of like a mussel or oyster because they're not pure calcium carbonate, which is like chalk, basically. They have a lot of other proteins and sugars mixed in along with that chalk, so they might not be affected as much because of that or also because they move around a lot. So uh, it's believed that they're able to combat increases in acid in their body because they're already used to dealing with it from their exercise. Okay, so those shelled animals that primarily make their shell out of calcium carbonate potentially will be more affected by increasing acidification of the ocean rather than some crustaceans that have their shells made out of a little bit different materials. Is that right? Yeah, it seems that way. Increases in acidity basically make it harder for that calcium carbonate to form. And so has your research been primarily on lobsters? So I'm working up to that. Last year, I began a project with these little shrimp. They're called grass shrimp, and they live in Mission Bay. If you've ever seen a lot of the eelgrass or, like, the long green stuff that's floating around, they live on that. And they're super small. They're only, like, the size of half of a matchstick. And that was what my first project was on. And I'm currently working on setting up another one right now with a limpet, which is like a snail, but instead of having a curled shell, it's got a little, like, cap on it. And those live in surf grass, which is another kind of grass that lives on our coast. But the lobster will be coming up hopefully in the fall. (laughs) Cool. And do you do experiments with these animals in the field or do you go out and collect them and then expose them to different acidities to try to see how they would be affected by ocean acidification? Oh, yeah. There are a lot of ways of doing ocean acidification experiments. Some people are trying to do it out in the field like uh, you asked, but most times researchers, including myself, go out and collect them and then bring them back in the lab. And that way we can really control what we're exposing them to and know how they're responding pretty exactly, which is nice. It's a little bit unrealistic, but scientists are working on making it more realistic to match the natural environment. And I think we're getting better and better at that. And so you were chosen um, as a Scripps graduate student to go to COP21, this Paris Climate Change Conference. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's because, like you said, ocean acidification is a part of or an effect of global climate change. Um, It's Mm -hmm. caused by emissions into the atmosphere of carbon dioxide, things like that. So um, first, before we talk about your experience at COP21, could you explain maybe in a little bit more detail than I did what COP21 is and kind of what it hopes to achieve? Yeah, okay. So as you mentioned, um, COP21 is the Conference of the Parties, the 21st one. Every year, leaders from many countries around the world that are part of the UNFCCC, so the UN Climate Conference basically, get together and they discuss ways that we can help our future Earth. Namely, the talks have been on reducing carbon emissions because that's the primary driver behind climate change. And it was formed about 20 years ago or so. And the first major agreement that came out of that was the Kyoto Protocol. And now that the Kyoto Protocol has been winding down, 
it needed a replacement. So a couple of years ago, they began talking about creating a new agreement. And over the past couple of years, that has been something that they've been working on every year. There have been attempts to make another agreement, but the last one actually ended in failure. At the end of the two weeks, the parties couldn't agree on anything. A lot of people just walked out of the room and it was dropped there. So at the last year or two, have been really focused on making sure that all countries are willing to go forward and what needs to be done best to make sure that everyone is happy with the outcome of the agreement. And so can you describe your experience at COP21 this past December and especially your experience as a grad student? Yes, I feel so lucky, especially seeing all of the fantastic leaders that are at this conference. It was so cool to be able to walk around and just rub shoulders with state governors and leaders and ambassadors there. The attendees are largely delegates of UN nations and they're negotiators. So what they're trying to do is sit in on meetings and make sure that their country's interests are represented. There's also a lot of other groups from non-governmental organizations that go and try to educate negotiators at the same time. And as a graduate student, we were really, I think, at the forefront of doing that for the oceans. So as students, we got to help educate the negotiators as they walked by our booth. So we had a booth set up in the area where all the negotiators walked by, and we were able to talk to them about the importance of oceans, both that they play a role in our climate system. They take up heat and carbon dioxide, but they also feel the effects through ocean acidification, ocean warming, and increased low oxygen zones in our oceans. So as students, we really got to share our experiences of doing our science and how we see our science being applicable to our work, but not only our work, but to other nations too. I was able to talk to people about their spiny lobster fisheries in Australia, for example, and learn to apply my work that way. And as students, we were able to sit in on a lot of the negotiations and a lot of the press conferences and meetings. And that's something that you really don't get to do as a graduate student normally, is get to see where your science gets translated into policy. There's a lot of huge steps in between making the science and then implementing it into an agreement like this. And I think as scientists, being able to see that process is super important because then you know how to direct your work a little bit and maybe do some more outreach, like going to events like this. So it is translated correctly and it's translated quickly and it can be used in the best manner. And so if you could just kind of condense this very long (laughs) conference and this very complicated agreement Mm -hmm. that was the result of COP21 this year, what were the results from COP21? And I've, I've heard that the results from this climate conference are very different than those in the past. So can you, can you maybe explain that to our listeners Mm -hmm. and myself? It was, Great. So there was a Paris Agreement, as you probably know by now. And overall, there's a really positive feeling at the venue when the last days in the negotiations were coming to an end. Uh, the negotiators were super bleary eyed because they'd be negotiating till 2 a.m. and then have to be back at 6 a.m. again for <laughs> more talks. But overall, people were very excited about the work that was being done and what was in the agreement. And I think the world has recognized that. So many countries have come together, 196, to create this agreement and start to take tangible steps towards uh, helping our future climate and our future oceans and our future ecosystems. So what's been different about this agreement than past ones that I've tried to go through is that it's created from the ground up, I guess. So instead of a large body dictating 
specific cuts for specific countries, the countries themselves create a plan and submitted that to the UNFCCC in advance of where they want to cut, how much they want to cut. And so it's really built from the country stance of what they think they can do and how it can combine together into a larger effort. The issue I think right now going forward is that these agreements together don't match the goal that all the countries have set together. So in the future, there needs to be more talks about how they're actually going to pare it down even more. And this year, there was a very big accomplishment that happened, especially for us ocean advocates. Um, Mm -hmm. Do you want to talk about how the word ocean is finally in the climate conference agreement? Yes, we were so thrilled about that. So that was one of our main goals going to this conference as students is making sure that our oceans are included because in the Kyoto Protocol and all of the smaller um, conventions and things in the past couple of years, I haven't mentioned the oceans at all. But as I said, they are super important for taking up heat and carbon dioxide and basically keeping us happy here on land. So recognizing that the oceans are part of this agreement is super monumental. It didn't talk about the role that the oceans play in the climate system, but it talked about the need for protecting our oceans. Uh, This is really important for scientists. It actually has implications for future funding. If government agencies see that and see that it's an important goal for the UNFCCC, then they might put more funding towards ocean science. But I just think it recognizes this important ecosystem overall. And as students, that was such a nice bonus, I guess, to all our work there is being able to see that the negotiators we talked to and many other people were able to decide for themselves that this was an important word that they wanted to put in there. And it was contested, so it was something that had to be worked on and on every single day to keep on the minds of negotiators and make sure that it was something that was included. That's so great to hear that the word ocean is finally in the agreement. And I hope that in the future, even, you know, the ocean's role in controlling our climate system, basically, and, and those sorts of things are, are also included. I hope it just goes up and up and up from here, which I'm sure you hope as well. <laughs> yes, actually calling for a special synthesis report or a report on the oceans in the cryosphere before the next report comes out in a couple of years. So that was great news that we just heard a couple of weeks ago. So there'll be lots of scientists working on getting all that data together and put into a report. So another thing that came out of this Paris Climate Agreement is that it was actually signed. So like you Mm -hmm. said, the previous year's climate conference, no one could decide on anything and everyone kind of just left with their hands up in the air. (laughs) And just recently, the UN representatives did actually sign this agreement that was decided upon Mm -hmm. with the word ocean in it at COP21. Can you talk a little bit about the significance of that. Yeah, definitely. So that event just took place on Earth Day, and that was held at the UN headquarters. And so most countries were able to attend, but all countries have a year to sign it. So at this point, everyone is showing their agreement for it, that they support this agreement going forward, and they agreed to go back to their own countries, basically, and discuss what their Uh, nationally determined contributions or what they decided they could do earlier, how that actually gets implemented in their country. But all of the big players were there. The U.S. signed it. John Kerry had his grandchild sitting on his lap during it, which is a great signal of how this will affect our future generations. Uh, China has agreed to go forward with it. Uh, India, 
So all these countries that are big emitters of carbon dioxide and other carbon pollutants are willing to put forward the effort to move forward with it. After attending this amazing conference and meeting all these delegates and policymakers and speaking about your science, how are you feeling about the ability of our world's nations to actually slow the rate of climate change? I think they're taking great steps. I do think there's a lot of work to go before countries are able to implement the things that they've said they're going to implement and start making those changes to their uh, energy usage. I think science is a big role in that because we really need the science to show how carbon emissions connect to temperature, which is how the UNFCCC tries to hold countries. So they want to hold temperature to well below an increase of two degrees Celsius in the future. But right now, as I said, countries' aims altogether go above that. So making sure that the science is implemented in the future is great and something I think that needs to happen more because delegates at these negotiations may think it's possible when (laughs) there are scientists there that are saying uh, not so much right now. In terms of nations, I think a lot of the nations that are developing have a a big role in this too. Uh, One of the things that's talked about a lot is that countries like the U.S. are really responsible for most of the pollution, which is true, and that developing nations need their turn to become more industrialized. But I think countries should work together to try to get the support for countries like us to get developing countries going with cleaner energy. So not having to go through this period of using coal or other carbon pollution sources. One of the things that makes me hopeful is seeing the local change here in California and in San Diego. So right after the Paris Agreement was announced, San Diego actually announced their climate action plan. So the city of San Diego now has a way to go forward in the future and make sure that we're committing more money to sidewalks and bicycle lanes and increased public transportation options. And at the Paris Agreement, what was actually heavily talked about were some of the actions that the West Coast states have been doing. So California and Washington and both of those governors were at the Paris Agreement and gave a lot of talks talking about what our states are doing right now and ways to scale that up. So scale that up through the U.S. and also other developed countries and implement some cleaner technologies. I think in order to be successful in the future, countries need to keep their mind on the goal of uh, what they want to cap our warming at, but states and cities really need to take a grounds root approach and start developing different technologies and trying to implement different energy sources. So we've been talking a lot about your experience as a scientist communicating your research to these policymakers and these government officials and the importance of that. Can you talk now a little bit about the importance of communicating your science and just science in general <laughs> to the public, so not just to policymakers that can make the change on a governmental level, but Mm -hmm. to the public that can make changes on an individual level. It's huge. I think we see, like I was saying on the national level, that these politicians can't quite get it done. But as citizens, I think we're really the driving force for making change in the future. But it's really important to both show the public that there might be problems that we should foresee in the future and can take steps now to fix that 
it isn't something that's unfixable and we're locked into. It's something that just changing the way you drive or changing the way you get to work or advocating to your local legislators about what you really want and getting those changes uh, implemented in your city where it's easier for you to make a change. So you could flip on your light switch and you might not know where your energy is coming from, but if you've talked to your politicians, then they might have made sure that your energy is coming from a clean source instead of a dirty source. And it's just that easy to turn on your light switch and not <laughs> even have to worry about what you're doing at that moment. So as a scientist, talking to the public about what we see is imperative, in my opinion. And I think there's really fun ways to do that. It doesn't have to be super boring and just giving a lecture about the cold, hard facts that we know. It's talking about what they care about, too. Uh, that's one of the reasons I'm really excited to begin working with spiny lobster, because they're a recreational fishery here. They're a commercial fishery here. And a lot of people, I believe, in the area recognize them as this uh, animal that lives right off the coast here in California. And, and so translating what we know about the future into this vehicle of an accessible species is something I'm trying to work towards right now. And there's ways to do that. When I'm out collecting my animals, I get to talk to people on the beach about what I'm doing and uh, share my science that way. Or I can go to places like the Birch Aquarium and give a more formal lecture about the research that I've been working on. So I think it's so great that you have a passion for getting your science out to the public, like you said, and also, of course, to these policymakers and global leaders that you got to interact with at the Paris Climate Conference. So, Caitlin, I really want to thank you for being on the show today. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk and share what you're doing with our listeners. Thank you so much. It's been really exciting talking to you about all these different things that I have my hands in <laughs> So for our listeners, I am going to be linking to Caitlin's Twitter. Um, she is on there as a ocean scientist, and you can follow her, connect with her, send her a message if you are interested in what she's doing or you have any questions about what we talked about today. Caitlin, I want to thank you again for creating positive change for the ocean. <laughs> thank you. You just heard Caitlin Lauder, PhD student at Scripps Institution of Oceanography that just recently attended the 2015 Paris Climate Change Conference. To learn more about the topics discussed in this podcast, visit my website at allisonrandolph.com and tune into next week's episode to hear another conversation between me and someone creating positive change for the ocean.